Questions to the Prime Minister, Mr Gordon Henderson. Question number one, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Gordon Henderson. Uh, Mr Speaker, 75 years ago, spitfires and hurricanes were flying over Sittingbourne and Sheppey in the Battle of Britain, defending our country from Hitler's aggression. It's particularly appropriate that the Royal Air Force protected the Isle of Sheppey because it was the birthplace of British aviation, something of which we Islanders are immensely proud. Will the Prime Minister join with me in paying tribute to those courageous RAF airmen who helped ensure the freedoms we enjoy today? certainly join my honourable friend in doing that. There was a very moving service in St Paul's yesterday where many of us were able to pay tribute to those brave pilots, to the ground crews, to all of those involved in what was not just an important moment in British history, but a vital moment in world history as Britain stood alone, the only thing that could stop Hitler and Nazism. And it's a reminder of how proud we should be of our armed forces then, today and always. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all those that took part in an enormous democratic exercise in this country, which concluded with me being elected as leader of the Labour Party and leader of the opposition. I think we can be very proud of the numbers of people who engaged and took part in all those debates. I've taken part in many events around the country and had conversations with many people about what they thought about this place our Parliament, our democracy and our conduct within this place. And many told me that they thought Prime Minister's question time was too theatrical, that Parliament was out of touch and too theatrical, and they wanted things done differently, but above all, they wanted their voice heard in Parliament. So I thought my first Prime Minister's question time, I do it in a slightly different way. And I'm sure the Prime Minister is going to absolutely welcome this, as he welcomed this idea in 2005. But something seems to have happened to his memory during that period. Um, and so I sent out an email to thousands of people and asked them what questions they would like to put to the Prime Minister. And I received 40,000 replies. Now, there isn't time to ask 40,000 questions today, and uh, our rules limit us to six. And so I would like to start with the first one, which is about housing. Two and a half thousand people emailed me about the housing crisis in this country. And I asked one from a woman called Marie, who says, what does the government intend to do about the chronic lack of affordable housing and the extortionate rents charged by some private sector landlords in this country. Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Well, first of all, Mr Speaker, can I congratulate the Honourable Gentleman on his resounding victory in the Labour leadership election? Can I welcome him uh, to the front bench and to these exchanges? I know we will have many strong disagreements, I'm sure, between us uh, at these exchanges, but where we can work together in the national interest, we should do so, and I wish him well in his job. Uh, uh, If we are able to change Prime Minister's questions and to make it a more genuine exercise in asking questions and answering questions, no one would be more delighted than me. I actually felt, I felt last week, 
I felt last week where we discussed a substantial issue with substantial questions and proper answers was good for our House, good for our democracy, and so I welcome it. Now let me answer very directly Marie's question, because we do need to see more affordable housing in our country. We delivered 260,000 affordable housing units in the last Parliament. We built more council houses in our country than in the 13 previous years had been managed, but I recognise much more needs to be done. That means carrying on with our reform of the planning system. It means encouraging the building industry to come up with innovative schemes like starter homes. But above all, it means continuing to support the aspirations of people to be able to afford their own home, which is where help to buy and schemes like that come in. But I'd say to the Honourable Gentleman, we won't get Britain building unless we keep our economy going. I thank the Prime Minister for that answer, and I thank him for his commitment that we're going to try and do Prime Minister's question time in a more adult way than we've done in the past. Um, The effects of government policy on housing are obviously enormous, and the decision made to cut, for example, 1% of the rent levels in councils and in housing associations without thinking about the funding issues that those authorities face is a serious one. I've got a question from Stephen, who works for a housing association, who says that the cut in rents will mean that the company he works for will lose 150 jobs by next March because of the loss of funding of that housing association to carry on with the repairs. Down the line, it will mean worse conditions, worse maintenance and fewer people working in it and a greater problem for those living in those properties. Does the Prime Minister not think it's time to reconsider the question of the funding of the administration of housing as well as of course the massive gap of 100,000 units a year between what is needed and what is being built? What I would say to Stephen and all those working in housing associations and and doing a good job is that I think for years in our country we had something of a merry-go-round where rents went up, housing benefit went up and so taxes had to go up to pay for that. And I think it was right in the budget to cut the rents that social tenants pay, not least because those people who are working and not on housing benefit will see a further increase in their take-home pay and be able to afford more things in life. Now, I think it's vital, though, that we reform housing associations and make sure they are more efficient. Frankly, they're a part of the public sector that hasn't been through efficiencies, haven't improved their performance, and I think it's about time that they did. Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I thank the Prime Minister for that, but it leads me neatly on to what happened yesterday in the House when uh, the House sadly voted through proposals which are going to cost £1,300 per year to families affected by the change in tax credits. This is absolutely shameful. I had more than a thousand questions on tax credits. Paul, for example, says this very heartfelt question. Why is the government taking tax credits away from families? We need this money to survive so our children don't suffer. Paying rent and council tax on a low income doesn't leave you much. Tax credits play a vital role, and more is needed to stop us having to become reliant on food banks to survive. What we need is a country where work genuinely pays, and that's why what our proposals do... 
What our proposals do are reform welfare, but at the same time bring in a national living wage, which will mean anyone on the lowest rate of pay will get a £20 a week pay rise next year. And that's why the figures show that a family... Sorry, I thought this was the new question time. I think... uh, I'm not sure the message has fully got home. I don't want to blind the House with statistics, but I just give you these two. One, a family with someone on minimum wage, after all our changes, will be £2,400 better off. Second statistic, and I think this is really important. If you look at what happened between 1998 and 2009, in-work poverty went up by 20% at the same time as in-work benefits went from £6 billion to £28 billion. The old way of doing things isn't working and we shouldn't go back to it. What we've got to do is tackle the causes of poverty, get people back to work, improve our schools, improve childcare. Those are the ways we can create an economy where work pays and everyone's better off. The Institute of Fiscal Studies says there are 8 million people in paid work eligible for benefits or tax credits. They are, on average, being compensated by just 26% of their losses by the so-called national living wage that the government has introduced. And so I ask a question from Claire, who says this. How is changing the thresholds of entitlement for tax credits going to help hard-working people or families. I work part-time. My husband works full-time, earning 25000 They have five children. This, discre- this decrease in tax credits will see our income plummet. They ask a simple question. How is this fair? The country has to live within its means and we were left an unaffordable welfare system and a system where work didn't pay. Now we see today the latest step of employment statistics where the rate of employment in our country has reached yet again a record high. More people in work, more people in full-time work and also are seeing unemployment fall in every region of the country except the southeast and the sharpest falls are in the northwest, the northeast and the West Midlands. What we're doing is moving from an economy with low wages, high tax and high welfare to an economy where we have higher wages, lower taxes and less welfare. That is the right answer. An economy where work pays, an economy where people can get on. And let us not go back to the days of unlimited welfare. Labour's position again today is to abolish the welfare cap. I say that a family that chooses not to work shouldn't be better off than one that chooses to work. Many people don't have that choice. Many people live in a very difficult situation and rely on the welfare state in order to survive. Surely all of us have a responsibility to make sure people can live properly and decently in modern Britain. That is surely a decent civil thing to do. I received over a thousand questions on the situation facing our mental health services and people that suffer from mental health conditions. This is a very, very serious situation across the whole country and uh, I want to put to the Prime Minister a question that was put to me quite simply from Gail. Do you think it's acceptable that the mental health services in this country are on their knees at the present time? 
Prime Minister. Well, as I mentioned before the first question, there will be areas where we can work together, and I believe this is one of them. We do need to do more to increase mental health services in our country. We've made some important steps forward in recent years. Mental health and physical health now have parity in the NHS constitution. We've introduced for the first time, we've introduced for the first time waiting time targets for mental health services so they're not seen as a Cinderella service. And of course, we've made the commitment, a commitment that I hope he will back undoing uh, previous Labour policy. We've backed the Stevens plan for an extra eight billion into the NHS in this Parliament which can help to fund better mental health services among other things. There are problems in some mental health services and it's right we make that commitment. But I make this one point to him. We will not have a strong NHS unless we have a strong economy. And if the Labour Party is going to go down the route of unlimited spending, unlimited borrowing, unlimited tax rates, printing money, they will wreck the economic security of our country and the family security of every family in our country. We won't be able to afford a strong NHS without a strong economy. If I could take the Prime Minister back to the situation of mental health in this country, it is very serious. I agree with him absolutely on parity of service. I hope that the spending commitments are brought forward rather than delayed to the end of this Parliament because the crisis is a very serious one. We know this from our constituents, we know this from people we meet, we know this from the devastation that many face, and indeed some have taken their own lives because of the devastation they face. I ask a question from Angela, who is a mental health professional, so she knows exactly what she's talking about. And she quotes this, beds are unobtainable with the result that people suffering serious mental health crises are either left without adequate care or alternatively admitted to facilities many miles away from their homes, relatives and family support systems. The situation is simply unacceptable. What does the Prime Minister say to Angela? to people like her who work so hard in the mental health services, or people going through a mental health crisis who may well be watching us today on Prime Minister's Question Time and want to know that we take seriously their conditions. We take seriously their need for emergency beds to be near their homes and their support system, and that we as a society take seriously their plight and are going to help them and care for them. What does the Prime Minister say to Angela? What I would say to Angela, all those working in mental health, or indeed those suffering from mental health conditions, is that we need to do more as a country to help tackle mental health. Now, that's obviously money into the health service, which we will deliver, but it's also changing the way that the health service helps those with mental health conditions. The, the, the Honourable Gentleman rightly talks about mental health beds, and they are important, but frankly, so is the important the service that people get when they visit their GP. Many people going to our GP surgeries have mental health conditions but actually aren't treated for those conditions and don't get access to, for instance, the cognitive behavioural therapies that are increasingly being made available. So my argument is, yes, put in the resources, change the way the NHS works, change public attitudes to mental health, because that is vital. But I say it again, we won't be able to do any of these things without the strong economy that we've built these last five years. Mr Andrew Turner. The, um, the Isle of Wight Zoo is having difficulty importing a tiger. She was, she was firstly cruelly treated in a circus and now has been kept in isolation for nearly two years, despite Belgium being wholly free from rabies. 
Will my right honourable friend assist in breaking through this bureaucratic lockjam? Yeah. I, I will certainly do uh, anything I can to help my honourable friend. Yeah. <laughs> I think the House wants to hear about the tiger. Let's hear about it. I do want to hear about the tiger. Um, and the point is this. Uh, we will help uh, with the DEFRA Animal and Plant Health Agency because they are the ones working on this. I had a constituency case exactly like this with the Cotswold Wildlife Park wanting to bring in a rhino and I intervened and I'm delighted to say the Cotswold Wildlife Park named the rhino Nancy in honour of my daughter. And, uh, and Nancy has been breeding uh, ever since she arrived uh, in Burford. And I hope that this uh, tiger uh, is also as effective. Mr. Angus Robertson. May I begin by congratulating the new leader of the Labour Party. We in the SNP look forward to working with him in opposing Tory austerity. We hope the Labour MPs will join him and us in opposing Trident. One year ago today, Mr. Speaker, one year ago today, to the day. The Prime Minister made a vow to the people of Scotland. Promises were made to deliver home rule and as near to federalism as possible. However, former Prime Minister Gordon Brown now says that the UK Government is, and I quote, falling short on the delivery of the recommendations of the Smith Commission on Scottish Devolution. When will the Prime Minister deliver on the promises that he made to the people of Scotland? We have delivered on all of the promises that we made. We said, we said we would introduce a Scotland Bill. We introduced a Scotland Bill. We said unprecedented devolution on taxes. There's been unprecedented devolution on taxes. We said that we'd provide those welfare powers. We've given those welfare powers. The question is now for the SNP. When are you going to stop talking about processes? And when are you going to start telling us what taxes you're going to put up? What welfare changes you're going to make? Or are you, when it comes to talking about the issues, frit? Angus Robertson. Very interesting. Yeah. Whatever happened to the new style of PMQs? Yeah. Yeah. So, Mr. Speaker, one of the architects of the vow says it's not being fully delivered, yeah. as does the Scottish Trade Union Congress, yeah. the Scottish Council on Voluntary Organisations. Yeah. Carers Scotland, Enable Scotland, they say that not enough welfare powers are being devolved. Only 9% of people in Scotland believe the vow has been delivered. Not one single amendment has been accepted by the Government in the Scotland Bill. Mr Speaker, Tory bluster and condescension will not go down well in Scotland. So for a second time, may I ask the Prime Minister in his new style of answering in Prime Minister's <laughs> questions, when will he deliver on the promises that were made to the people of Scotland? Obviously, it's going to get a bit of getting used to, but let me, let me try and answer him very calmly. What I noticed from his question is that he hasn't given me one single example of where the vow wasn't delivered. If he can point, if he can point to a tax we promised to devolve but haven't devolved, I would accept it. 
If he can point to a welfare change we promised to devolve but didn't devolve, I would accept it. He hasn't done those things. All he is doing is continuing an argument about process because he doesn't want to talk about the substance. You give me a list, sorry, he should give me a list, of the things that were promised and weren't delivered, then we can have a very reasonable conversation. Until then, it is all bluster from the SNP. Again, Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister has a lot to be pleased with Corby for, and that's Corby, not Corbyn. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not, only did, not only did Corby help him back into number 10, but it also gave to him and the world the DVD case, which was first designed and first produced in the town. This week, we continue that entrepreneurial spirit with our bid for a new enterprise zone being submitted. Would the Prime Minister agree with me that areas that are taking significant housing growth should also benefit from new jobs and new infrastructure? I think my honourable friend is absolutely right. There's a lot that's very positive happening in, in Corby. We've got the claimant count coming down by 29% over the last year. Long-term youth unemployment is down. And I think the point he makes about areas that take extra housing, uh, getting the opportunity for more infrastructure, it is right. And so, yes, ever since his election, I have been feeling a sense of Corby mania. Mr Ronnie Campbell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The public sector, the public sector workers... The public sector workers, like nurses, health workers, local government workers, teachers and public service workers, have never had a pay rise for five years. They've been told by the Chancellor they're going to get a 1% for the next five years. What is it with these hard-working, good taxpaying people that this Tory government are not getting a decent rise? Well, well, first of all, what we have been most keen on is trying to protect the services and the jobs, and that has a direct impact if you simply have larger pay rises. But of course, today, inflation is 0%. There is uh, pay increases in the public sector. And of course, what he completely fails to mention is the progression payments that, for instance, in the health service, have delivered year-on-year pay increases for many hard-working people in our NHS who I want to see rewarded. But there's something else we can do, which is to cut their taxes. And by keeping public spending under control, by growing our economy, we're able to say to everyone in our public sector, you can earn a £11,000 before you start paying any income tax at all. That has been a pay, ri- pay that has been effectively a pay rise for 29 million working people. Yeah. Mr. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Following the Prime Minister's visit to Yorkshire last week, peace, love, and harmony has broken out yeah. <laughs> right across the county. Members on both sides of the House have expressed their support for a Greater Yorkshire bid encompassing North, East, West Yorkshire and Hull. Would the Prime Minister agree to meet with me and members to discuss the merits of this bid and the central role we believe it can play in the Northern Powerhouse and our economic security? 
Well, I will obviously, Mr. Speaker, take great care with my answer and check that um, I'm uh, speaking. I think it's excellent that we've got these devolution proposals, uh, and I think it's very good that a number of different ideas have come forward from Yorkshire. I think now the most important thing is for people to try to come together and get behind a plan for Yorkshire, but be in no doubt this devolution is coming in terms of real powers and real ability to drive that economy as part of our northern powerhouse. Kate Holland. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My constituent, Alona Hallam-Clark, who is 11 years old, suffers from Morkia syndrome. This distressing disease stunts her growth and leads to abnormal development of the bones, and at the moment there is no cure. Enola would like to be able to use the drug Vimazin to help alleviate her condition, but NICE has yet to decide whether the drug should be available on the NHS. Will the Prime Minister do all he can to encourage NICE to come to a speedy decision for Enola and people like her? Well, the Honourable Lady is absolutely right to raise this case about this particular illness and this particular uh, drug that other members have, have raised as well. She's right to say that NICE are still looking at it. I will continue to do all I can to ensure, as she says, they reach a speedy decision. We do need to have a dialogue too with the drug companies because of the vast prices being charged uh, for some of these drugs uh, and to say that there's, you know, there, there are uh, resource implications from the vast cost of these drugs and we need to bring those costs down to make them more available more quickly. Kelly Tolhurst. After a CQC inspection at Medway Hospital, a two-day diversion of ambulances has been put in place starting this morning. Can the Prime Minister assure me that all will be done to turn things around our hospital so my constituents can have a fully functioning A&E swiftly and urgently. Yeah. Minister. Well, I, I re well remember discussing this with my honourable friend because obviously a hospital has faced difficulties but what we've done in these circumstances instead of trying to push that under the carpet is to send in a team to turn it round and improve its performance and more work needs to be done but the pledge I can make is we'll continue investing in that hospital, we'll continue working on that hospital to make sure it can provide the service that her constituents deserve. Daniel Zeichner. Mr Speaker, at the general election the Prime Minister promised an extra £8 billion a year for the National Health Service. This week, the Chief Executive of one of our leading hospitals in the country, Adam Brooks Hospital, which serves my constituents of Cambridge, resigned, not least because of the financial crisis that's engulfing our health service, as indicated by the King's Fund yesterday. How much more damage has to be done to the NHS before the Prime Minister coughs up? The danger of introducing too much politics into this answer, he mentioned the general election. At the general election, our party stood on the proposal of £8 billion more into the NHS, effectively £10 billion more into the NHS, and we've set out where every penny piece of that is coming from. At that election, the Labour Party did not support an extra £8 billion into the NHS. They did not back the Stevens plan. The truth is, if you want proper reform for a seven-day NHS and the resources that go with a successful NHS, it is the Conservative Party that will deliver. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a world in which we have a, a nuclear North Korea, a rampant and aggressive Russia, and the pure evil of the so-called Islamic State, would the Prime Minister agree with me that to protect our security and way of life, 
we simply must have an independent nuclear deterrent. Honourable friend is absolutely right. In terms of defence, this is the most important duty for a government and for a Prime Minister. And the cornerstone of our defence will remain the 2% spending that we've committed to, with the increased defence budget in this Parliament, will be membership of NATO and Britain's own independent nuclear deterrent as the ultimate insurance policy in what is a dangerous world. And the fact that the Labour Party are now turning away from those things is deeply regrettable. National security is the most important thing a government can deliver, and we will never fall short. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The plaques at the entrance door to this chamber in memory of Airy Neve, Robert Bradford, Ian Gow, Sir Anthony Berry, serving members of this House murdered by terrorists as they stood up for democracy and the British way of life, they are a reminder of the savagery and brutality of terrorism, as are the gravestones and the headstones in Northern Ireland and right across this land. The opposition leader has appointed a shadow chancellor who believes terrorists should be honoured for their bravery. Will the Prime Minister join with all of us on all sides of this House in denouncing that sentiment and standing with us on behalf of the innocent victims and for the bravery of our armed forces who stood against the terrorists? From the reaction he's heard, the right honourable gentleman will see that he has spoken for many, many in this House, and I would say many, many, the overwhelming majority of people, the vast majority of people in our country. Airy Neve is the first Member of Parliament I can remember, because he was my Member of Parliament. Ian Gow was one of the first uh, politicians I ever wrote a speech for, and there had never been a kinder, more gentler public servant in this House so cruelly murdered, and his family having that life taken away. I have a simple view, which is the terrorism we faced was wrong, it was unjustifiable, the death and the killing was wrong, it was never justified, and people who seek to justify it should be ashamed of themselves. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Schools in Poole are in the bottom five and schools in Dorset in the bottom 11 when it comes to local education authorities and funding per pupil. I welcome this government's commitment to a fairer funding formula. Does the Prime Minister recognise the importance of fairer funding for our schools in Poole and Dorset and the need for this to be implemented as quickly as possible to ensure a world-class education for our children, including respect for our traditions and perhaps even learning the importance of our national anthem? Good question. Um, my honourable friend makes a very important point. There are very strong calls on all sides to make sure we address uh, the fairness in terms of funding. What we did in the last Parliament was allocate £390 million extra for fairer funding, and his own authorities, uh, Dorset and Poole, did benefit from that, receiving £3.1 million and £3.2 million respectively. What I can tell him is that that money is included in the baseline for school funding in 2016 and 2017, but I know there is unfairness in the current system, and, and I want us to do everything we can to make the funding formula fairer. This is Sharon Hodgson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Nissan, in my constituency, has just reached the half a million production mark for its new Qashqai model, breaking all UK records. I'm sure the whole House would 
join me, and I'm sure that as the Prime Minister would, in congratulating Nissan on this great achievement. Mr Speaker, Nissan's constructive, unionised workforce has helped achieve this fantastic outcome. So why does the Prime Minister attack workers' rights when in many cases, like at Nissan, Trade unions are an overwhelming force for good. Well, first of all, let me agree with the Honourable Lady that uh, the achievements at Nissan are absolutely remarkable, and it's one of the great privileges of my job is being able to go and meet people there and see what they're doing. I think I'm right in saying that the northeast of England now produces more cars than the whole of Italy, and I think that's something we can be proud of. And of course, now with the new Hitachi factory, uh, we're going to be manufacturing trains in the northeast as well. Look, the trade union bill is not what she says it is. It is to make sure that we don't have strikes based on very low turnouts. Let me give her one example. A couple of years ago, we had school strikes that shut schools right across our country. That ballot was two years out of date, and only 27% of people turned up to vote in that ballot. You've got parents, working parents, all over the country having to keep their children at home when they should be getting the public service that they paid for. That's what our bill's about, and I hope it'll have support across the House. Uh, Mr Speaker, the bravery of all of our servicemen and women is beyond question, but would the Prime Minister agree with me that the bravest of the brave must be those who faced the invisible bullets of Ebola in the West Africa uh, crisis recently? And would you take an opportunity of joining me and other members of the House and both Houses at the great north door of Westminster Hall straight after Prime Minister's question, when we will welcome back 120 soldiers, sailors and airmen, together with aid workers, medical workers and others, who did our bidding in West Africa? I'm delighted to join my honourable friend. One of the uh, great privileges of this job is recently I held a reception at number 10 for people who had served in West Africa tackling Ebola. And they are some of the most brave and remarkable people I've met, whether it was the nurses or the volunteers or Britain's brave armed forces. It really is remarkable what they've done. We're almost in a position of being able to declare Sierra Leone Ebola-free. Great work has been done by the people of Sierra Leone, but I think the fact that Britain was able to take on this task is because we have good armed forces, properly funded, and our aid budget at 0.7% of our GNP is something the whole country can be proud of. And this is exactly the sort of use of our aid budget where we're doing it with moral force and our moral conscience, but we're also keeping our country safe at home. And for those who wonder sometimes what are the uses of British troops, I'd say get a map out and have a look at Sierra Leone. Yeah. Tom Blenkinsop. The SSI steelworks in Redcar are facing serious and imminent challenges. Uh, UK steel is of vital strategic importance to the British economy. Will the Prime Minister urgently meet with me, my honourable my friend for Redcar, the Steelworkers Union community so that we can look at more positive ways of supporting our industry in order to protect it in much the same way that other European governments do. Well, the Honourable Gentleman is quite right to raise this, and everyone is concerned about the steelworks in, in Redcar. Obviously, we've taken the action of voting with others in Europe against Chinese dumping. We've also provided over £30 million of support in terms of high energy users. And also, by setting out our national infrastructure plan, we're giving steel producers a sense of the demand in our country in, in the months and the years to come. I'll certainly consult with the Business Secretary about the best sort of meeting we can have in order to make sure we do everything we can to keep steel making on red car. Last but not least, Mr Graham Evans. Thank you. Yeah. Does, does the Prime 
Minister agree with me that this government's commitment to spend 2% of GDP on defence protects our national and economic future while giving our 21st century armed forces the moral and financial support they need to protect our nation's security? We have had to make difficult decisions in the spending review and we will have to make further difficult decisions, but the decision to increase our defence spending in a very dangerous and uncertain world when we face threats in Europe with the behaviour of Russia, the threat from ISIL in the Middle East, combined with all the other threats, including cyber, means it's absolutely right to increase this spending and to make sure that membership of NATO remains the cornerstone of our defence. National security will always be the top priority of this government. Order.